I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We took a week off over the 4th of July because I had COVID. What what happened? So what was your COVID story? Head was in a vice, muscle aches, uh, just really felt cruddy. And I thought, oh, I know what this is. So I went home, took the test. Sure enough, it's COVID. My advice to people who get COVID would don't be to <laughs> don't get it, yeah, don't get it. <laughs> to stay in bed uh, because that's all you want to do is just stay in bed and sleep and binge watch uh, Netflix and then be sure to open your windows because after you've stayed in, in the same bed in the same small room for several days, <laughs> you really need to open your windows. I don't even want to know what that means. TMI. <laughs> Netflix stench. TMI. What did you binge watch? What did you watch? Oh, yeah. Um, the Deuce, which was an old series. I don't know if anybody watched that or not. <laughs> I see. What? So you, see it? you binge watched what? number two. You were watching number two and you had to open the windows. No, no the Deuce. The Deuce. <laughs> okay, we cannot use this. We cannot use this. I'm Charlie Arnott with Look East and the Center for Food Integrity, dedicating my career to keeping food trustworthy. I'm Susan Schwally, president of the Food and Beverage Practice at the MPD Group. I'm fascinated by why people eat and drink what they do. And I'm Kevin Ryan, your resident food nerd and founder of Malachite Strategy and Research. And I've developed innovation and strategy for dozens of CPG brands from Green Giant to Haagen-Dazs. And we are the three squares dishing on the food industry. We're uncovering the interesting stories in food and talking to today's movers and shakers. Well, Charlie, it's certainly good to have you back, and I'm I'm glad you're recovered and you have all your faculties. So, you know, we should probably talk about our guests. Good idea. Good idea. We'll get this show back on track. So Mike McCloskey is an amazing guy. He's been an innovator for decades. He reinvented fluid dairy and created a premium product out of what was a declining commodity. So it's a great story to learn a little bit more about Fair Life. Uh, the milk that he and his wife, Sue, created and how they partnered with their co-op partners at Select Co-op and finally with Coca-Cola to create a national distribution of a new premium milk. Our table discussion with Mike McCluskey is next. At General Mills, we know it's not just what we make, but how we make it that matters. We take care in selecting the ingredients behind our beloved brands, such as Cheerios, Nature Valley, Old El Paso, Haagen-Dazs, and Annie's. And we go further by working every day to alleviate hunger, slow climate change, and strengthen communities. Today, that's what it means to make food the world loves. Learn more at GeneralMills.com. Susan, Kevin, I am so excited today to be able to introduce Mike McCloskey to join us on Three Squares. I've had the pleasure of knowing Mike for over 15 years, and he's always three steps ahead of everyone else. He's co-founder and CEO of Select Milk Producers. That's the sixth largest milk cooperative in the country. His home dairy is Curtis Creek Dairy Farms in northwest Indiana. It milks 15,000 cows in a freestall barn, or freestall barns, 800 cows with a robotic milk dairy, and 1,000 cows on an organic dairy. Mike has long been an innovator and a leader in sustainability. Curtis Creek Dairy Farms harvests their cow manure through digesters, creating more than enough electricity to power all of their farms, as well as creating biofuel to fuel 42 milk trucks, displacing 2 million gallons of diesel fuel annually. 
What's of greatest interest probably to our audience is is Mike's instrumental uh, role in, in leading and creating proprietary value-added dairy products, which led to the creation of Fairlife, now solely owned by Coca-Cola. Fairlife's products range from Fairlife milk, higher protein, lower sugar, lactose-free targeted to families, to core power, a specially formulated athletic drink, to Greek yogurt, to food service products, and including the Fairlife Nutrition Plan, my, my lunch. He got his doctorate of veterinary medicine in 76 and then completed a two-year postdoc residency in dairy production medicine at the University of California, Davis. Mike, thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Charlie. Uh, Looking forward to the conversation today. Let's start with fluid milk and really the creation of Fairlife, which is a a fascinating story. It's over a billion-dollar brand now for the Coca-Cola company. Uh, You know, no no secret to anybody, the fluid milk category had been in decline for decades, where about the only innovation that took place was whether you were going to put a red, blue, or green label on the plastic milk jug. So rather than kind of waiting for something else to happen, you you and Sue developed an entirely new product. You decided to create a premium product out of a commodity category. Tell us that story. It's a pretty fascinating uh, outcome. So uh, to get into Fairlife, I got to back up just a little bit and get into select milk producers and the reason that we founded select milk producers. You know, in the 80s, uh, things became quite quite a commodity, as you said. Uh, you know, the gallon jug milk production in general became a commodity. Um, the quality of uh, milk wasn't where we believed it should be. We were very focused on quality. That's one of my specialties from UC Davis. In the case of the Fair Life, uh, I think the story starts there. It starts that we wanted to have the highest quality of milk to be able then to um, start distinguishing um, milk outside of that commodity category. When I was a kid, you know, we got milk every day in a glass bottle, but it was every day. And that milk was produced the night before. And all us kids liked when we ran into our homes, you know, there was Coke, there was 7-Up. But we grabbed milk. Why? Because it had a tremendous desirability factor. And if you didn't have the highest quality, the somatic cells, which have enzymes in them, the bacteria, which cause their effects on the proteins and oxidations also in milk, and the transparent gallon jug allowing the light to come in. All these factors are playing together to change the that desirability factor, right? So we focused on our farms on, on, you know, creating the highest possible quality amongst other things, our environmental stewardship together with our animal welfare and others. But um, packaging was extremely important to me. Um, we were able to extend their shelf life a significant percentage of over where it was just because of the quality. At the same time, we were starting to use a lot of filtration, as you probably remember, in the cheese business on the wayside. So I, I was a student of that as well. I had done a lot of work in, in one of the farms I had in New Mexico back in, in 89, 90, 91, and had learned quite a bit about filtration during that time, knowing that the, the, the protein and the vitamin and mineral profile in milk is exceptional. Uh, what I wanted to do was increase it. We perfected the process as early as uh, 99. By 99, really? yeah, we were the first people to be able to achieve that, that. That that was the beginning of Fair Life, by the way. I wanted a high protein, high vitamin, high mineral, low sugar, lactose-free product. That, that basically is what I focused on. So if you look at all the Fair Life products, uh, they, they're all built around that same initiative. Some have more protein, some may have a little less. Uh, some may have a little more sugar, some a little less, but they're all very low sugar, very high protein, 
uh, and for different functions, right? And I'm talking about the initial formula for what is known as the uh, the Fairlife uh, uh, milk, the 52 ounce uh, that we sell today. That's the first formula that that we perfected, and we still make that product for them today as well. I'm interested in your focus on quality. I think is 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 really enlightening. This idea that that was your your first thought. I'm interested in. Were you conscious of the effect of um, the long shelf life and how that might play in merchandising? Because when I look at like fresh milk now, I think, okay, compared to Fairlife, because now when I see Fairlife on sale, it seems like a merchandising lever being used because it's like, because it has such a long shelf life, you can stock up, you can get lots of bottles of, of Fairlife and it almost locks up the fridge, so to speak. Uh, was that in the back of your mind of like, wow, if I can really get a great quality for uh, this long a shelf life, it's going to be a, a huge merchandising lever? Yeah, Kevin. So quality has so many implications in this in this conversation, so many. It, it truly does in what you're referring to shelf life. Without a doubt, that was in my mind. But yeah. um, I'll, I'll put flavor always over everything. And I, I made sure that when we established Fair Life, just as, as, as Fair Oaks Farms, I will not produce a product. I will not sacrifice flavor on a product. The, the complexity of, of Fair Life was to say, I'm, we're going to deliver something with extraordinary flavor, but driven by health and wellness. That's really where, where you know, innovation has to come in. You have to fully understand the science from every aspect. Mm -hmm. So you want to have very low somatic cell count. So those changes are minute, that they're not affecting the product on a long shelf life. Uh, and bacteria, obviously, they are, li li you know, living organisms. And there are bacteria that are safe bacteria that are not pathogenic, that make it through pasteurization, as we all know. And that's what spoils your milk over, you know, 17, 22, 25 days on, on your standard milk. So for sure, you want to get that to nothing so that you don't have that issue as well, and is what we focus on on Fairlife. Matter of fact, I would, I would put our, our IP at Fair Life on pasteurization above anyone in the world. Tim Dolman, who is the CEO of Fair Life today, who's been with me since the day I started Fair Life. He's just a brilliant plant guy besides the brilliant and many other things. And Shaquille, um, he was just this brilliant guy that, you know, without Shaquille, uh, Fair Life wouldn't be what it is today. You know, created innovations and, and, you know, obviously we have patents and anyone can read those patents, but we have more IP than we have patents. And that's a whole, if you look at our tagline, uh, believe in better, Sue and I, you know, trademarked that tagline a long time ago. I think it really exemplified who we were when we started and, 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 and those people that have joined us and, and have made the company successful. That's what they believe in as well. So every day we get up at Fair Life, every single day. And the only question is, how do we do this better? How do we deliver something to our consumer that has that amazing taste, but brings that vitality and, and that joy of health and wellness that a product like Fair Life can bring? You know, Mike, what I think is so interesting, you know, you're just talking about how do you bring the taste and the health and wellness to the consumer? But I think about what the consumer was concerned about and what was going on in the 90s with milk. And we were at the height of the the no low fat craze that was putting pressures on milk. We had cereal starting to decline. And you are creating this new technology that you launched in 2000. And you're ahead of where the consumer is moving. And you hit that nexus point 
first of all, I love that you followed your North Star and put the quality innovative product out there and people came to it. But then also how after 2000, as consumers came around to a lot of the things that you were offering, how did that spur your growth and, and take off for you? I just think that the when you think of the attributes that we're talking about here for consumers, that the consumer is looking for something that, that's better for them, that, that's going to give them that vitality. But no one wants to sacrifice taste. I mean, everyone will come back to taste sooner or later. To me, it was a focus that, that I go back to when I was a kid. Milk was the most delicious thing that I could think of, right? So, so the focus on all of those, uh, and then obviously understanding that truly protein was the new trend. And I understood that really early in the 90s. And I believed in it. Uh, obviously, I believed in it. I bet the farm on it, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, yeah. All those trends where the consumer was going, it's all in that bottle, everything. Mm -hmm. But then we'll go even further. I mean, we focus so hard on, on the environmental side of our farms. We focus so hard on the animal welfare side of our farms. Fair Life is, is a, you know, truly focused on how does it touch everyone that it's close to moving into the into the low carbon you know production of of milk and products and that's going to you know be probably uh one of our largest initiatives at fair life over the next 10 years i think a lot of great things are going to come out of that as well so now you've got a great product you could try to build a, a global distribution network or national distribution network, but instead you chose to go partner with somebody who already had a distribution network for beverages, but was looking for some innovative products. Tell us about why you chose that. And then the story of, of the partnership with Coca-Cola. It was very easy for me to say, man, I got, we have something really tremendous here, but, um, you know, how do we get it out to everyone? Well, you know, who, who better, who better than the Coca-Cola company, right? So we, we were, we, I'd been knocking on Coca-Cola's doors for quite a while, probably since 97, I was already in there with the dispensing machines and with other things, uh, wow. but you know, with a fair life concept and with his milk. So it wasn't, it wasn't easy. What I would share with people that, that, that would be in a position like I was is not giving up. Um, the, the large companies, it's really hard to find your way through the maze sometimes. And that took a while for me to learn that process. Uh, a lot of visits and, and not giving up, not stopping and continuing to look at, at these companies that I was looking at. And Coca-Cola was one of the main ones, but it wasn't the only one. You know, I ran into an incredible gentleman who was the first CEO of Fair Life, uh, Steve Jones who had a great relationship with Coca-Cola, he and, and, and many others. So, you know, he was instrumental in helping me move through that maze and getting to the right people. It's been a great relationship. I have to say Coca-Cola has a culture that I, I love. I think they also appreciated the uh, fair life culture and, and the fact that we were a health and wellness company. And, you know, Coca-Cola obviously, you know, has great refreshing drinks, but they needed to add on health and wellness to their portfolio and continue to do that. And they've done that through teas and many other things. It's just not with Fair Life. It's a, a very focused beverage for life, you know, is, a, is our motto. And I think one of the things that, that, that Coke has done um, that I admire the most is, is that they have still allowed us a level of independence to allow us to be entrepreneurial and run our company somewhat separate. You know, we're, we're um, very connected, but we're not totally integrated. 
Well, congratulations to you and Sue and the entire Fairlife team. It's, it's a terrific story. I want to shift gears now to perhaps the biggest challenge facing uh, animal agriculture, particularly dairy and beef, and that's the environmental challenges and the concerns about the impact of, of dairy and beef uh, on climate. Uh, you're clearly a leader and a visionary on those topics. What do you see happening in the industry and what does the industry need to do to get out in front or at least to come to some kind of, of parity with social expectations on impact on the environment? Uh, I'm incredibly excited, Charlie. I, I have to share with you that the industry has done a phenomenal job uh, since 2007. Uh, the dairy industry got together uh, down in Bentonville and uh, we had a, a big summit and uh, we haven't looked back. I chair the 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 environmental committee for the U.S. dairy, you know, the U.S. dairy industry committed to net zero by 2050. And this is Mike McCloskey's personal opinion. We're going to beat that somewhere by 2040, 20 or, or thereabouts. Uh, we're, we're, we're definitely on a trend to, to, to beat that. You know, this is a whole value chain, but I'm going to drop it down where the majority of, of a carbon footprint comes from is a source, right? All sources come from either mining or farming. Right. Fair Oaks Farms or at Curtis Creek Dairies, all of our manure, 100% of our manure goes into digesters. And we take a biogas, which is 60% methane, we convert it into 99% methane, which is basically what natural gas is, but this is a renewable natural gas. And we sell that then as renewable natural gas into the pipelines and, and it flows to the low carbon fuel standard system in, in California. But that's a scale issue, Charlie, and we have a lot of dairies in the United States and not all of them can meet that. So yeah. one of our big concerns is what could we create to give this opportunity to, to the majority of our dairies? Digesters would be kind of the number one, right? We, we created a thing called the electric pathway. It's a clearinghouse. And what the clearinghouse does is verify that a dairy farmer put in a digester on their farm and put the electricity on the grid. You know, now obviously we're working with the APA to approve all this. It's not, it's not released yet. Obviously the dairy industry is very supportive. This is a very positive thing. That's phenomenal. And then you add to that, that this genetic selection and genomics is just an amazing thing in cattle. So if you can imagine, a, it, we start selecting cows and we reduce it down to that 10%. So that's 10% less feed, that's 10% less methane with the same production. So just, you know, and I could go on, all of this is going to create, you know, great opportunities for farmers, for dairy farmers, for beef. It's exciting. Mike, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you very much. Um, do you ever stop innovating? I mean, I mean, I mean, do you sleep? Does any of this ever end for you? You know, no, I, I can't see it ending. I, I enjoy what I'm doing. We're doing some great projects in Puerto Rico now with tropical agriculture, which is going to be fascinating. So I'm very focused on that. Uh, um, that that's kind of my next thing that I really, really, I, I think the tropics are the most underutilized agriculture in the world. You get to produce, you know, 365 days a year. In Indiana, I get to produce five months a year. Uh, productivity per acre is 2.5 times more. So, um, you know, there, there's tremendous future in the tropics if we can figure out what the limit, limiting factors were. That's amazing. Let's talk about Mike. It was a, he was great. He was really interesting. Fluid dairy consumption had been on decline for decades, and the industry was beating their head against the wall, trying to figure out what to do, but nobody really innovated. Uh, I mean, they thought, well, we're just going to do a better job of advertising. Yeah. Well, the problem wasn't marketing. The problem was the product. Right. Plus, I think he had a vision and pushed it forward. They have better cows. 
They do. Right. Better management. That's where the milk comes from. Why are you guys laughing at I'm, me? I'm not laughing. Okay. But but no, I think that's good. Plus, I think that his whole talk about tropical uh, investment and the you know the thing, that to me is super exciting. I was just reading about uh, some some smaller companies that have gotten investments in 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 tropical agriculture, and that really does feel like the future. If he can take that same vision that he had around Fairlife and the technology and apply it to tropical, that's going to be huge. The other thing that was impressive to me was the you know. He, he gets it that 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 animal agriculture, particularly cattle, dairy, and beef, are in the crosshairs of of environmental concerns. Ninety percent plus of a retailer's um, emissions come from the supply chain. Right. And if you take that all the way back to livestock and then feed production for livestock, they've got to be able to focus on that if they're going to achieve their scope three emission targets. Mm. I mean, there's also something to be said about the fact that the whole package, the total product offering that he was able to get from the technology, but then by partnering with the co-ops and Coca-Cola, the marketing ability yeah, and the yes, distribution yep. ability, that is, yep. that is the full, full, full product. I mean, that, and that's really what needed. Yeah. Yeah. Because Coca-Cola is not going to talk to you unless you can scale. Yep. Um, there's nothing there. And um, if you don't have distribution like Coca-Cola, there's no reason to scale. Yes. How many trips and how many meetings and how many times he had to go to find the right people who could actually make decisions and to maintain that level of, of persistence to get through the process, that was the future of the product. Yeah, can you imagine? Wow. We should have asked him more about his leadership skill. His his that would be a fun thing to do on some podcast. Would be to get a few of our innovators all on the same podcast and have a, just a conversation around their leadership attributes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so so the last several times, apparently, I've been overcaffeinated or overly enthusiastic in introducing what the food. <laughs> I don't think so. He's great. No, no, no. The, the, what the food? You think the Mister T? What the <laughs> food the... is okay? Because I, I was going to do something a little more dramatic this time. Let me put a special effect on that today. On this episode of What the Food, food scientist, entrepreneur, and innovator Kevin Ryan will be delving into topics, exploring the unknown, and taking us to What the Food. It's like a, the beginning of Unsolved Mysteries food episode or something. There you go. Okay, so today on What the Food, what I really want to talk about, just inspired by Mike, I want to talk a little bit about milk. The idea that we have milk expiration dates and milk grading and the type of cheese that we use on pizza in the United States all might be connected to Al Capone. No. Yes. Really? So, yeah. So it's really interesting. And I say might because there's, you know, there's the, the history is not exactly clear, but it's pretty clear that there's certain things. So, for example, during the 1930s, Al Capone decided that he wanted to uh, expand his operations, so to speak. And so he bought a dairy. He wanted to break the dairy cartel, as they would call it in, in Illinois at the time. Looking for the cash cow. The cash cow, the literal cash cow. Dairy yes, cartel. exactly. And so what he did was he partnered with his brother. I didn't even know this about his brother, his brother, Ralph Capone, which you, you don't hear about Ralph too much. That's a lame name. <laughs> it is. No. There's mm-hmm. no, you don't, you're not afraid of Ralph Capone. You're afraid of Al Capone. You're not afraid of Ralph yeah, Capone. Yeah, not Ralph Capone. But anyway, yeah. Ralph Capone ran the dairy and he imported, secretly imported milk from Wisconsin. Oh. And brought it in cheaper into Illinois and processed it so he could undercut the Illinois milk of the dairy. The reason why Al was so big on doing this and breaking the back of the milk 
cartel in Illinois, according to legend was a friend or someone that he knew, their child died from drinking bad milk. Oh. So you have to remember, during the early part of the 20th century, milk quality was not good. Well, it wasn't pasteurized, right? It wasn't pasteurized, but it wasn't even that. It was, the dairy was way outside of town. There was very little refrigeration, if at all. Oh, yeah. They were hauling yeah. it around. They were hauling around. It was usually called uh, white poison. Oh. It was brought in. It was, yes, it was very bad. So he actually pushed through, through Meadowmore Dairy, the idea of uh, having expiration dates, having grades on milk. Now, the other side of this is about the cheese. So using Meadowmore Dairy, he convinced, and you can, I'll, I'll use scare quotes there, convinced uh, New York pizzerias that they should be using Meadowmore milk, uh, uh, cheese in of their course. pizzas. Now, the type of cheese that he was making is low moisture mozzarella, the type that we get, the shredded stuff that we get now yeah, in yeah. the store. Yeah. That is not what they were using on pizza. They are using what we think of, you know, is the fresh mozzarella in a real yeah. Italian pizza. Oh, yeah, yeah that's yeah, a whole yeah. different yeah. thing. He, mm -hmm. in a sense, forced them to, if you know, you should be using my cheese, this type of cheese. And they actually called it mob cheese. No kidding. Yes. And the only way you could get around not using the mob cheese was if you agree, you didn't sell it by the slice. If you sold a pie, you could use. Oh, you, if you you could use the old cheese, yeah. To the point of you can, you can still go around New York, and some of the signs will still say no slices. Well, how did he patrol that? Now, if you've ever seen that in New York, I've seen it in New York. It says no slices. That's what that reference is. No slices. Do you think? Yeah, that meaning. We are with the mob. We are not, don't come in here. We are, we, we, we abide by this. So, wow. so there's very possible, again, you know, some of this may or may, it depends on which history you follow, but Al Capone might have had something to do with grating milk and the type of cheese that we use in the United States on pizza. So Kevin, do you think that has any influence on why Chicago pizza is so thick and so full of cheese. Maybe. You're making him sound very altruistic, like he wanted to preserve the milk for all the children. No, they were definitely making money. I mean, if you really think about it and, you know, the, the real way that it probably happened, it was probably the fact that he could make a lot of money through another. Mm -hmm. In fact, there was a quote I remember reading where he was like, this whole dairy industry, we should have been in the dairy business versus the alcohol business. It's fascinating. Because it's a much better, it's a much better, better racket at the time. Wow. At the time. There you go. Thanks again to General Mills for sponsoring Three Squares. If you would like to be a sponsor, you can reach out to us at threesquaresmail at gmail.com. That's the numeral three, squaresmail at gmail.com. And listen to this. In addition to reaching our audience of food system leaders, you'll also get 90 minutes alone with the Three Squares. So send us a note. Reach out to us, threesquaresmail at gmail.com. Three Squares, Dishing on the Food Industry, is created by Charlie Arnott, Susan Schwally, and Kevin Ryan. Thanks to our producers, Dave Beezing and Jason Jackson at Sound That Brands. And of course, most of all, thanks to you for listening. If you like the show, please give us a rating and review, follow for future episodes, share it with your friends, and you can follow us on LinkedIn. We're at Three Squares Podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll set the table again soon on Three Squares.